We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Turrbal and Yagara people, and their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and flood media is recorded on stolen land. Thanks. Well, you know, we never introduced ourselves. No, oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, do it now and I'll paste introduce. it in. <laughs> okay. So, we're uh, here today with I'm Max. Uh, I tweet at M Chanlameda. I'm Joe at Joanna underscore Horton. I'm Liam and I un- and I tweet, I, I underscore at tweet.com. No, I, I, I tweet at underscore howlin underscore dog <laughs> when, I, when I do tweet, which is sadly very rarely. But when you do, it's always good quality. You make good predictions. I do. All right. Revenues. Revenues. Yeah, so we're kind of branching out this show, I guess, uh, getting to some real new territory, talking about what's wrong with the Labor Party. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're just in that particular historical moment where our major sort of like centre-right party <laughs> is is um, blowing up before us. It's the pacification of, I keep wanting to call it a social democratic party, but it's not a social democratic party. No. So what do you call it? I mean, is it cheeky to call it centre-right? Because it's probably is that it's right probably now. confusing for our listeners. Yeah, um, like probably not for our listeners actually. Yeah. <laughs> our, well, for it's, the broader public to listenership's in around ten thousand people. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. right. A rough, you know. Yeah, it's give or take nine thousand nine hundred. Yeah, well, it's emotionally true. Also, are we going to do a pitch for our Patreon now? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so if you're like, listening to this right now. And you're wondering, how can I get more of this amazing show? And you have a little bit of cash to spare or, you know, a lot of cash to spare. And you want to, we've got a special offer where if you donate over $50 to our Patreon, you get to decide the political opinions for one (laughs) show, for one person for that episode. <laughs> but only one? And yeah, everyone only else one. Has to stay the same. <laughs> yeah, so you could have really interesting eclectic shows. Mm, you could get sounds... Declan to become like a superannuation true believer. Like a stan. <laughs> yeah, superannuation oh stan. <laughs> uh, you could get Max to become, I don't know, a member of the Labour Party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Once that's... again. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, can you donate to our Patreon? So that, so that Joe doesn't have to find a job. <laughs> yeah, full time editorial staff. That would be great, like, actually, if I didn't have to find a job. Um, please. That's the dream, though, right? And baby. Yeah, that is definitely the dream. Paying our contributors would also be good. Yeah, oh. uh, we actually. Well, um, I may as well do a quick pitch. We're planning to do some commissioned essays um, when probably in the second half of the year, um, around August, because uh, Max and I are about to go overseas. So when we get back, I want to do some. Um, commissioned essays on the website um, uh, where we pay maybe $50 per essay and that's made possible through the generosity of our existing Patreon donors. Uh, shout out to all of you. Uh, so, Fuck yeah. yeah, if you would like to see more commissioned, high-quality content, um, yeah, maybe chuck a couple of bucks in and we can see what we can do. Mm-hmm. That would be pretty good. Yeah. What people... What who what would, sort of things would we commission? Well, people would have to submit their work, and then we decide Ooh. who's worthy of getting paid. Fifty dollars, you know, that's going to get it's, it's going to get nasty. The <laughs> there's going to be there's going to be like backgrounding being done, in, but internal maneuvering. Yeah, within yeah, absolutely. Death of Stalin all over. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Didn't you say that was that was the movie that re-inspired you in politics? Mm. I think we've heard this particular anecdote <laughs> on the show before. Have we? <laughs> yeah, I listened to you all like call me out about that. <laughs> but it did. I got so on like the Khrushchev fucking train by that point. I was like, fucking smash that barrier. You yeah, know? Well, barrier is like, an evil cunt. Like you, fucking anyone, but barrier basically. Yeah, it was inspiring. <laughs> Very inspiring. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Khrushchev did some pretty fucked up shit. Yeah, but you know, know he just stepped forward. You know, <laughs> he got rid of most of the death camps. I think he changed this. Uh, it's probably more likely to change um, the Bolsheviks from the inside, or the uh, uh, Communist Party from the inside, than anyone has a chance of changing the Labor Party. Well, from let's the say that Khrushchev could definitely challenge Albo from the left. <laughs> <laughs> Who is the Khrushchev of the Australian Labor Party? I don't think they have a Khrushchev. I think Khrushchev is far more talented than anybody the Labor Party currently has. The last Khrushchev was probably Kevin Rudd. Yeah, well, I was going to say, if, if Khrushchev did exist in the Labor Party, he would be just like knifing people and rising to the top by now. Maybe it's Elbow. No, oh my God. <laughs> Not the Khrushchev that we need, but the Khrushchev <laughs> the Labor Party deserves. Well, this is taking a bizarre turn. So, why yeah. are we doing this show? Why are we doing this show? Um, I guess this week was a particularly bad week in the um, annals of, you know, pathetic Labor Party his, um, history with the, the passing of the tax bill and then that bizarre um, attempt to amend the tax legislation. Um, I saw someone on Twitter say something like, uh, when you don't realise that people are laughing at you, not with you. <laughs> <laughs> was uh, that the amendment to bring it forward so that it was... No, no the amendment, you know, they tried to amend the, the name of the bill. Oh, was that's it's right. Like, student oh, politics. It really was like, a student politics yeah, joke. I can't yes. believe grown adults do that, but there we go. And uh, then a, f- a few weeks ago, of course, we also had the decision um, to approve Adani, which we covered on last uh, the last episode um, with uh, Mick in Rockhampton. So yeah, and they I also know. voted in federal parliament to support mining in the Galilee Basin. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which happened this week as well. Okay. Yeah. So bad week, bad times, uh, and yeah, you know, given our status as uh, the pr- premier dishes up of um, hate content about the ALP, we thought <laughs> like this is our moment. We've got to uh, we got to take advantage of the, all the material bl- they're giving us. You don't blink at these points. <laughs> exactly. You so don't blink. A, as a Move hook. Forward. For you know, because you're probably looking at the SoundCloud or however you consume our amazing content, and you're thinking, "Well, hour and ten minutes, huh? You know, do I want to go through all of this and just hear the same things again?" But we're going to start with a very basic premise. I think Labor's dead. This is this is it. This is the this. Looking back, we'll say this was the start of the disintegration of the Australian Labor Party as a political force. And it's I don't like to make predictions, but it's hard to imagine them forming majority government uh, at a federal level, mm. again, uh, in any meaning. Like, apart from maybe, I think the only chance is if the coalition disintegrates faster. Mm. Uh, but mm. the Labor, part, like, Labor Party are doing do a it. pretty good job. And, you know, going forward, working out what that means for progressive strategy uh, and how do we respond to that. Uh, uh, you know, do we go and reanimate Labor's lifeless corpse a la Corbynism, or is that even possible? Or do we go down a different path? Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's a good I think that's a good hook, and I think it's a very real one. Something that I was thinking about earlier this week, because I think um, you know this 
I, I, I said at the time, I think I wasn't on the, the election sort of uh, federal election analysis flood, flood cast, but I think that some of the things we were chatting about like were represented on that. And my, my take that it was like the election that was, it was an incredibly honest election. It was probably like, I actually really enjoyed the shit show of this election from an intellectual standpoint. Like I understand that it was terrible, but like, it was one where the honesty of just how broken and banal and contentless politics is in this country was really laid bare. And I think the Labor Party was the, the, the leader of, of that, like, banality. And I think this, this as the first sitting week since uh, the election, just, just confirms that. Like, we've, we've entered an era of just absolute honesty yeah. <laughs> in Australian <laughs> politics. Done with like, fake friends. Yeah. yeah right. Elbow's done with fake friends, the and, workers. And I, and, think, and I think it represents... It's ready to show the real him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think it represents like this this step of like, I mean, there might be a few little attempts to, to reclaim some left-wing cred or whatever, but I think they're going to be really, really weak. And I think they're putting themselves in a position where they're not going to be able to fight back. And when crises hit, like there will be more and more crises in terms of um, economic, political, ecological, and migrant crises that come over the next ten to twenty years, like they are not prepared to deal with that. They are putting themselves in a position where they cannot stake out a space for their politics or whatever that may be, but their political identity um, that will be able to deal with all of that. So I think I think it's very real to say that even if okay maybe they could form majority government again once more like they might have one final shit show but even that does seem a little bit uh, hard to imagine at this stage but even if they do that i think it's one more i think they got one more in them at at best and after that they are obliterated Keel over uh, so so i guess then like the show that we're doing or hoping to do today is not so much just like critiquing labor because they're doing terrible things because i think we all know that by now but it's maybe more of a structural analysis of like why that is and and what that means for the future. Yeah, why um, like, taking that kind of this yeah, doesn't occur. It's like this isn't view. just because there's a few bad people at the helm of the Labor Party. Yeah. Like it's not just because you know um, that we don't have the sort of some heroic Labor leader figure who's been blocked, uh, you know, or uh, could arise and just transform the Labor Party. And there's just a few bad people at the strategic making table. I saw on Twitter a few times like people rediscovering changing from the inside like you know that like <laughs> they're like that whole like it sort of disappeared in the in the lead up to the federal election this concept that like yes labor party's broken but join it so we can change it from the inside and it reverted to this like no this agenda is bold and progressive yeah, and everyone needs yeah. to fall in line and like yeah maybe we're not Agreeing to raise new start or build social housing or do anything meaningful for anyone really, but this is amazing. Uh, and yeah, but you it. fucking pull your heads in. This is the best party going around. Yeah, and but it's it's re- like it's reverted back as if it's a new idea. Like a few people are like fuck. I think the party's a bit broken. Like <laughs> do we but probably what if we could like change it from yeah, within. From, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Within? Yeah. Oh, I like the idea of that. <laughs> and then Sounds like, better I, than I, changing it from without. <laughs> I watched a few. I like sort of like uh, there's a few. Um, People on Twitter being like, "Yeah, I've been saying this for ages." And it's like, it's like what? I've been broken for years now. <laughs> this is yeah. an echo chamber of broken that you know comes around every few years, just gets to the same point and then keeps going. So, so uh, what did Labor do? I mean, they passed. It was so. This was it happened over the course of about a week, 
Albanese came out at the start of this and said they really want... There was a series of tax cuts being passed by the coalition in three stages, and uh, the Labor strategy seemed to compose of two parts. One, they wanted to separate stage three, which was the most regressive uh, part of the tax cuts, which weren't actually going to come online, uh, come into effect until, I think, 2022. Or 2023. Uh, or 2023. Yeah. yeah, 2022 was stage two. Uh, and they wanted to separate those out and uh, pass stage two, but also bring stage two forward, uh, which also is actually highly regressive anyway and dis- continued to distribute money up up the income chain. But anyway, uh, and at, there were still rumblings at the time when that strategy was first articulated that we should probably... You know, a few Labour right-wingers said we should pass it all anyway if the coalition refuses to split it up. Which, of course, if you announce that out loud, why wouldn't the coalition then just say, of course, we won't split it up, pass it anyway? Uh, that position seemed to deteriorate and in the House of Representatives. They moved that juvenile motion uh, with that bizarre title that they all seem to giggle over around bringing stage two forward with that stupid student politics title, something like... Uh, so, the so it's not really, really far away. The title yeah. of the bill is the tax relief bill to make sure hardworking Australians get to keep most of their money, and which is like fucking dumb enough to start with. Then Labor's like brain genius move was to amend that title to the tax relief bill to make sure hardworking Australians keep most of their money, but not for a really long time. <laughs> uh, I just, I go, oh my God. It, just, I, it beggars belief that, yeah. So I, that, I just, that yeah, amendment doesn't get up. I'm going to stop now. That <laughs> amendment doesn't get up and in the House of Reps and then Labor vote to pass the entire package to the House of Reps and there's rumblings on, you know, around that while they did that, they wanted to bring it into the realm of the Senate because that's where they had more of a chance of um, winning this fight. But then actually to the surprise of a few people, which is funny, uh, Labor voted for it without needing to. So the coalition had negotiated with Lambie and the Centre Alliance and the crossbench and they would have got the entire package through uh, without... Um, Labor support, but Labor still voted for it without not needing those numbers. So it ended up being an $158 billion tax package and actually makes our tax system the most regressive it's been since the 1950s. Uh, so this is a, a this is undoing the minor gains that were won under lo- lo- sort of like centrist Laborism under Whitlam and Hawke uh, during that period. All of that is undone at a, from a progressive tax perspective. Uh, which is quite like I mean it's, it's quite remarkable. Uh, and then the other thing they did was vote for the, um, you know, vote for the Galilee Basin Mining Bill. So the question is, um, you know, like is it worth then if we're going to take a structural analysis, stepping back a bit and being like, so why did this happen? Like why why are we in this situation now? Like apart from the stupid juvenile tactics, why have they got in the position where they think this is a good idea? What's going on in the economy? Because Albanese has just come out today and uh, has said, you know, his line was around this. We also said the, this is Albo, we also said the economy is flatlining. We need to get more money into the hands of workers right now. That's why we're arguing to bring forward stage two. The only people who are threatening to block any tax cuts to the Australian workers was the coalition, uh, which is bizarre. So it seems like their incentive is this stimulus. They wanted to bring on a stimulus to the economy. And the way they wanted to do that was reduce the amount of tax uh, on incomes and use that as uh, a, stim- a stimulus in the sort of consumption part of the economy. 
Well, I guess I mean I mean I suppose we can talk about the the econ- economic situation, right? I mean, I'm not a huge economics nerd, so I'm, I mean, from from firstly, I suppose the thing that I th- I think is is happening is is not so much an economics thing. Like, obviously, the economy there's all these indicators suggesting that it's really struggling or it's about to, you know, head into recession or something. And so, um, but. And so, what the interest rate cuts? So there's been two consecutive ones in space of a few months, which is the first time that's happened since like in a decade or something. And then now at you know one of the lowest rates they've ever been. Yeah, or in, well, in certainly. I mean, the, the, the significance the first time there's been consecutive cuts since yeah. 2012. But what are they down to now? Is it one percent now? Uh, I think it's yeah, one point two five. It was oh. from one point two five down to one. Anyway, there was it was like six or seven only ten years ago or something. Yeah, I mean, I. And one percent, but I don't even really look. I think the thing is that there's a bunch of indicators, and but it's a question of who's, you know, what's the response to these things. And the I think Labor's, it's it's almost that they, it's not so much that they have right wing neoliberal, right wing neoliberal political ideology. I think it's it's just so much that they've gone up the ass of Canberra machinations and the fear of. Uh, being beaten by the media and by the libs in terms of the like narrative war that they wanted to just let like they wanted to not they wanted to scuttle any potential debate that they weren't ready to have and and they they were happy to just kind of concede defeat immediately in both houses i think that was kind of the main thing that was happening it was like let's not have a fight about the narrativization of this and like alternative ways of dealing with an economic potential economic crisis or whatever we'll just let this one go through to the keeper in fact actually no it's beyond that we'll play the three-dimensional chess because we <laughs> want to outflank the libs by saying that we're actually the ones who want to do but i'm not sure if that bigger better ref- tax cuts yeah i don't think it reflects the neoliberalization of the labor party i think what it, like there they've always been like i don't think it's sort of like is some revelation about them going down the neoliberal path they've been doing that for a long time like Hawke and Keating were the ones who introduced all the like started this process but I think it does show how bankrupt they are strategically that they're kind of like well how about we outflank them by saying we want to bring them forward and then we'll make the libs look like they don't want to give workers money and then they just concede the entire terrain to the right effectively. It's ridiculous. It's like, I don't know, this idea that you can beat the right at their own game is so fucking misguided. Like, they will, no matter what you do and say, they're always going to have the narrative that you are high taxing, that you hate working families, that you don't want to let people keep their money, whatever. That's never going to change. You may as well actually be left wing so you can have a good way of countering that. Even Van Baddam said this in a Guardian article today. Oh, really? Yeah, did you read read the article? Yeah, Yeah, I read it. It was pretty much, it was quite soft. I mean, I think for me, I think it does have a lot to do with the economics in the sense that like, we're going through, you know, like it's not like the reason the RBA is cutting the cash cash rate is because growth is incredibly low. But also the other uh, major problem is debt is uh, skyrocketing across the developed world. In particular, uh, you've got in personal indebtedness now. It's at about 190% of income. Government debt. Australia despite, is like one of the worst in the OECD. So, yeah, it's Post- one of the worst yeah. in the OECD. Yeah. Uh, we've got an enormous amount of government debt as well. Yeah. Like, And that is only going to be made worse, funnily enough, with these tax cuts. But I think the idea is that you use it to stimulate the economy. Um, mortgage delinquencies are going up for the first time consecutively. 
uh, which is really interesting. And there was a whole ABC article about that. And a lot of people, a growing percentage of people are going into negative equity. And like, I think, Liam, you're right. It's like a strategic thing, but it's also like, I think, you know, my working theory of this this week has been like since the 1970s, uh, when stag, you know the stagflation crisis, where you had high unemployment and high inflation, and the sort of social democratic parties of Europe and even in Australia had this choice to make, which was like, how do we deal with this crisis? We either have to go, we either have to take control of capital, like we have to democratize capital, uh, because that's the next step to control investment and things like that, or we retreat uh, under the sort of like in that neoliberal wave and like. The radical nugget of taking over capitals is probably the first step to actually democratizing the means of production. Like it's a socialization of the of the economy, the likes of which has never happened in history. Uh, well, you know, apart from the Soviet Union and a few other places, but certainly in sort of Western democracies. Um, and now we've reached this period, and it, like again, the choice really is that you know social democracy up to the 1970s relied on constant growth, like. They needed a growing economy to distribute the new gains that were made. Yeah, and it was always collaborationist in that sense. Yeah, right? ab- absolutely. Yeah. And you know, it was a it was a it was an uneasy peace deal between capital and labor in the sense mm. that capital was fine, it was okay to deal with this as long as growth rates continue to increase and profits um, weren't eaten into too much by high wages. But that shifted in the 1970s, and now we've reached this point again where you know we've got a low growth economy. And the financialized growth of the 2000s came to a fucking huge end in 2008. And how does right-wing social democracy or centrist laborism or right-wing laborism distribute income if the economy is not growing? And as we said off air, you know, like one choice is our perspective, which is to go and take enormous amounts of wealth from the ruling class and distribute amongst other people and and start going starting to take over capital and democratize capital and enormous nationalizations and public ownership or uh, you go down the path of taking now there really is only two choices and so from a structural perspective it was they were always going to take this because in the 1970s at least they had a highly organized labor labor movement and now you've got on the same day that they're passing the tax cuts uh, albo is having a meeting with uh, he's having a cash for access meeting at a uh, private cash for access meeting at the press gallery, not the press gallery, the um, anyway, big hall in uh, Canberra with like the leaders of the Australian ruling class. It's a five thousand dollars a head sort of thing, and right? They were, and they were praised on that same day by someone, some representative from Telstra or Commonwealth Bank or whatever, mm. for taking the responsible action around tax, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, this is an elbow going to meet with the leaders of the labor movement, yeah, this isn't yeah. Like, you know, this is this is a dead in Moribund party where they've been hollowed out and union memberships at historic lows. They have no direction to turn. Mm. Even mm. if, like, I think the other th- interesting thing to think about is even if a radical social democrat or democratic socialist at the helm of the Labor Party and wanted to take the alternative path, mm. what what social basis yeah. do they have to do that on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting just talk, just you mentioning. Oh, he's not going to meet with the leaders of the Labor movement. It's very possible that I just haven't been following this closely enough, but it does seem like the union movement um, and ACTU has not had too much to say on the tax business. Like I'm sure they've, you know, given some opinions, but they haven't been like seen or really portrayed or been, as far as I can tell, a key player, which does indicate that they are kind of retiring from or have retired from the whole idea of like an economics, a stake in economic control. 
and are very much becoming or have already become much more about, you know, just change the rules, just industrial relations, mm. conditions at work um, and that kind of thing. So I just wanted, yeah. to, read, I just wanted to read this because I think it's actually like this is about that blue chip event just because of how disgusting it is. <laughs> like if you think about what's happening on that same day, like I haven't felt angry about Australian politics in a little while because like post the federal election, there was this like this sense, you know, like all my emotions were like crushed to a certain level you couldn't you couldn't react with passion adrenal gland was depleted but this was like this is the first time i read something in a while and i'm like you fucking cunts like you know like the day after you take mdma and all your emotions are are dead and then it starts coming back over the next few days and you're like what are these feelings (laughs) i think i remember these feelings (laughs) but it's like so blue chip corporates in australian riches this is from the australian uh, well-known uh, media outlet. Blue chip corporates in Australia's richest are clearly taking Anthony Albanese's leadership of the Australian Labor Party seriously. <laughs> oh, well, thank God First for that. Yeah, um, the only on people who are. Night, on Wednesday- <laughs> 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 this is our reading series. On Wednesday night, Albo and his chief of staff, Tim Gattrall, hosted a private dinner sponsored by Andy Penn's Telstra at the National Press Club in Canberra. Margin Call can reveal that around 20 paying corporates were along... Uh, we're along to discuss the new iteration of the federal help bee. New iteration of the federal help bee. <laughs> now even Curse more shit. Yeah. Uh, Got it a was new a new hat. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was a blue chip roll up. A good sign for Albo as he attempts to improve the party's relationship with the business community. Oh my god! Could it well, be he, any more improved? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like new and improved. We promise we'll never take power again. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Jess, <laughs> fucking Trad has just said that she like. Mining companies don't need to pay royalty. They can volunt- like they can basically yeah. contribute to a crowdfunder. Yeah, yeah, There's, exactly. Like, their relationship is not bad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Although, I mean, businesses always do hold it over them. But anyway. Yeah, right. exactly. Uh, so among those who forked up between uh, three, $3,500 and $5,000 to attend were government relations operatives from tech behemoth Google. So, like, this is international yeah, capital coming along. wild. The Retail Superannuation Fund Lobby, the Financial Services Council, a delegate from Stephen Conroy, ex-Labor Ministers, mm. Online Gaming Lobby, Responsible Wagering Australia. Oh. Responsible <laughs> Wagering. Wow. Yeah, yeah. What a name. Macquarie <laughs> Bank's govern- Government Relations Agent. I love that they have the banks have government relations agents. Oh, yeah. uh, Navleen Prasad and her Telstra counterpart, Cecilia Bergman, a Rudd Gillard-era Labor advisor who is poached from the Treasury Wine Estates by Penn's Telco the month before the election. Back when a shortened government looked all but all but uh, inevitable, as in like oh, like capital was like bringing in representatives from Labor into them, oh. it seemed, like is isn't oh, that amazing? Wow, uh, so much cursed in one sentence. Uh, and, uh, we this is over- great. This, this is incredibly revealing. Yeah, yeah, this is really interesting. And we mustn't mm. overlook the richest attendee, Harold Mitchell, whose fortune re- re- was recently valued on the Stenholt list at three uh, three hundred and fifty million dollars. Mm. It's interesting to see the Crown Resort director flying his Bombardier Global Express. Express, which sounds like the spruce moose. <laughs> uh, get in, <laughs> but I get in <laughs> to, to Canberra so early in the political site, uh, cycle. The reviews mm. from last night's attendees uh, who spoke to Margin Call were favourable. We'd like to see an effective opposition. One told us they had a good, positive <laughs> approach. Said another. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> positive uh, as in positively passing all the yeah, yeah, uh, that's government's it. That's very effective. <laughs> yeah, this, this bit's my first. Like, this bit's the, the funniest bit, though. legislation like, for them. Uh, that elbow is enlisted Guttrell, who was campaign director for Kevin Rudd's 2007 triumph and the winning yes campaign in the marriage equality referendum, has certainly buoyed the, um, buoyed the LP corporate supporters. Even true believers love a winner. Oh, <laughs> wow, this is amazing. So, but what's amazing, yeah. like... Oh, it, it's incredible and, and, and revealing on a number of levels. But why cap like those those representatives of Capital feel necessarily necessary to talk to them? Like, you know. Well, like- I mean, yeah, I was just thinking that through while you were saying that, and it's sort of like why talk to this rump of a you know of an organization that is already like dying, like is coughing and wheezing its way into like parliament every day, like I. I mean, I suppose it would make sense because, I mean, like, if you're as dominant as capital is in Australia at the moment, why not just go for it? And, like, this is a moment of extreme weakness for the Labor Party where there's, like, kind of internal confusion, right, in the ranks. Like, it must be. Imagine that upset on the night. Like, obviously, across the country, there are Labor members, Labor branches, um, you know, Labor MPs who are thinking, like, what's going on? How are we going to form government again? And sure, Albo's stepped to the helm, um, but that doesn't resolve that. And so, like, swooping in um, with an effective strategy to lock in what Albo's strategy already is, which is a beyond conciliatory approach to, to capital. It's like a fucking roll yeah, sure. out the red carpet for capital kind of approach. Um, locking that in and like tying the Labor Party even further to um, to the interests of, of uh, capital, I think is... Is is kind of um, it makes it would make sense. The coalition disintegrates. Yeah, totally. That's what I would do. That because you've already got the coalition tied up. Like you don't have Mm. to worry about them. They tie themselves up. If anything, they go too far. And also, like I mean, the state. I just read this the Christine Berry book of um, what is it? People get ready for about UK politics. She goes into the 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 penetration of capital's representatives into the UK state. It would be just as bad in Australia. I haven't really done the analysis myself, but looking at like for instance Infrastructure Australia, like the board of Infrastructure Australia is just stacked with like big time you know like representatives of like they have they've had a job in like as a ceo of some major australian corporation or international corporation or like finance international finance and these are the people making decisions or like recommending things to the government about what infrastructure spending should be that's only one example of like the capital doesn't need to do anything for the like that's already doing everything like the liberal parties doesn't it's not going to buck the trend of that and like making sure that the the albanese labor government are, are going to play by the rules 110 percent makes a lot of sense i mean shorten was always going to do it anyway that unless you've got some plan to actually like boot some of these people off those boards like or you, just just destroy the boards yeah true. like you know like just get rid of the concept of having infrastructure australia as a board and have it democratic like it's introduced by rad i believe in Infrastructure Australia board, but I think it was like not as independent as it is now. <laughs> this is the real exciting content people come to come for. Yeah, the, infrastructure you know, Australia board. The history of the Infrastructure Australia board. <laughs> you know, a good representative of uh, oh, the no, sort of, you know, like uh, 
you know, what's the quote? I think I just, all I wanted to say was just those cash for access meetings are just like, I mean, we talk a lot in the Greens about like cash for access meetings and, um, you know, political donations from big corporations. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? Like, yeah. What's the Communist it, Manifesto quote about, you know, the state being the... Um, the managing, the executive committee for managing the affairs of the bourgeoisie. Yeah. I mean, like... It basically it, right? Like, it's only gotten more that. Oh, yeah. Like it was, it's, I mean, so much of that is so prescient. But anyway, mm. yeah. Um, which is interesting in itself. And, and so, like, we've reached this uh, political moment. And, mm. I, you know, I think the other thing out of all this is the context is that, you know, the crisis is probably can't be overstated, the crisis that Labor are facing post this federal election and them reading mm. everything wrong yeah. out of this. As we thought that they probably would. But yes, yeah, absolutely. What's amazing about it... No you one know, should be surprised. ...is, you know, th- so I was saying this off air, but Labor's primary vote out of this federal election, 33.3%, is lower than the 2013 Abbott wipeout in yeah. uh, in 2013. And, like, what's... It's, am- it's amazing. So, they have gone backwards from mm. when they were crushed by Abbott in 2013. Or not... I mean, crushed by themselves, really. Like... But, you know, crushed by the coal, effectively, because the coalition, even in 2013, only got a 1.4% primary vote swing. It's funny. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they, they, they've crushed, uh, yeah, absolutely. And this last election was was just a, a mutual crushing. Yeah, it's, they got crushed faster. But yeah. the other interesting thing is that all their biggest swings against them were in their most working class areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, uh, so the areas where the electorates that s- um, stood to benefit most uh, actually, to benefit, sorry, to be most um, badly affected by Labor's uh, capital gains and negative gearing reforms uh, were the electorates that swung most to Labor. So, and the electorates that would have benefited Wild. most from, um, that would have been, like, would have, wouldn't have had any negative effect, yep. basically, as a result of those changes, were the electorates mm. that swung against mm. Labor the most. Mm. So, poorer working class areas were the ones that turned against them. Which really Not- puts pay to the narrative that, oh, we went to the election with a bold progressive agenda and people just, you know, we were we were just like not, mm. um, we were defeated by the ruling class interests. Like, mm. it yeah. seems really it's more like your working class base fucking saw through you. Yeah. You saw this at the door when we were door knocking. The, yeah. only, the only people that seemed to be staying loyal to Labor were wealthy middle class people. And, uh, you know, and this is the other thing. It didn't go to the coalition. Like it went to One Nation, it yeah. went to Palmer, yeah. it was. Uh, it went to the Greens whole, here a bit. Yeah. You know, you know mean, this is the this too. is the yeah. symbol of the disorganisation of the uh, working class in any formal sense. And it is amazing that the lessons they're going to learn are all the wrong runs. But maybe they're not. It's not even a question of learning lessons. Like maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe it's they're not in a capacity to learn any lessons anyway. This yeah. is just the path. No matter how many strategists mm. go and tell them differently, this is the path they're going. Yeah, they're sort of structurally structurally locked into a certain kind of like aimlessness from from here on. Because I think going back to what you were saying before about like uh, Max about um, you know I think the the economics of this like there are two paths. Either you know you go you, you support you sort sort of support tax cuts or you talk about a bolder democratizing of capital, like taking away capital's capacity to withdraw investment. Well, like I, I think from that's, that's the reality, but I don't think that necessarily dominates the total possible discursive space. Like there is this space for labor to say, this is not the way to do it. The way to do it is to stimulate growth through infrastructure spending, right? That would be the other way of doing it, which of course kind of means what you were saying is what that, that is 
a shade of the alternative, which is like the state taking over investment in a way. But it doesn't necessarily have to be in a revolutionary trajectory, right? It no, could just but be I don't a think- purely management trajectory. We're going to invest in infrastructure. It's going to be public-private partnerships. We're going to prop up. You know, like, it doesn't have to be demo- like publicly owned. It doesn't have to break with the neoliberal consensus, but that's how we're going to stimulate it. I don't know whether that works, blah, blah, blah. There's, there's the economics around, well, does that provoke more inflation? I don't know. Can the economy handle it? I don't know, but but that would be the discursive thing that you would do. And to be honest, the Dan Andrews government in Victoria demonstrates that that's popular. Like, he's not doing anything fucking radical at all. Like, the guy is a turd. But he's sewn up, I mean, at the moment, it seems, anyway, in Victoria. I mean, and we did see swings to Labour in Victoria, which I think is an interesting... I, I think that's a reflection of the Dan Andrews effect, that that's being mapped on to federal Labour there. Um, but I think, I, I think it does indicate that this kind of middle-of-the-road um, laborist, old-fashioned laborism, yeah. which is not about tax cuts for workers, but about providing jobs for workers through, um, you know, infrastructure spends and what, like, getting the, you know, managing things in a way that pr- provides more well-paying jobs. Um, I think that that it was the other path out of it, but I think federally it just seems like labor do not know how to, or they've they've backed themselves into a corner where they just they're not willing to take anything on at the moment. I think that's more to do with like the chaos in the ranks and them not wanting to take on a single battle for the time being because yeah. they haven't sorted their shit out. I think it's interesting. And they're not to, going to, I don't think. I, I think it's interesting. My instinct is that an Andrews strategy wouldn't work at a federal level because the areas where their vote disintegrated, so there's working class areas of Queensland and Western Australia where, like, you know, they are coming out the back of that, like, Andrews' strategy writ large was the mining boom. Yeah. Like, the construction phase of the mining boom was an enormous infrastructure, public-private in, in, uh, in infrastructure explosion, you know, where electricians were being paid fucking $300,000 a year and, like, this whole section that you would assume would be the working class were earning double what managers were earning in the public service. And they're coming out the other end of this. And so I think like discursively, A, that would be severely unconvincing for a a group of people who've experienced that disintegrating and failing. Sure. Uh, Whereas in Victoria, it's different because their economy is much more mixed. Uh, They, uh, you know, like they're the sort of like, the construction phase of the mining boom affected their economy much differently than it did mm. to Queensland and the yeah. downturn we're experiencing here is a bit different. So I think so I think it would back them into a corner. The other thing I'd say is I agree. I mean the other discursive space is the space that the Greens took into the federal election around high taxes on big corporations yeah. to fund um, social reproduction. So like free childcare, free education, yeah. free dental. Yeah. Um, massive and, you know, part of it being, but not public-private. And I think discursively the break with neoliberalism is the important part where Corbyn has got it right Yeah. because I think it ma- it creates a coalition that I think Corbyn did in 2017 and I'm not sure if he's going to do again, which is the anti-politics um, section of the vote and the social democratic section of the vote. Yeah. You know, like um, being able to say the system is broken uh, and articulate an alternative to it, I think is, you know, at that level, that anti-politics level that Rudd did to a degree in 2007. He was the first, I think he was the first anti-politician in many ways of a, you know, uh, like, successful anti-politician in Australia in that sense. Um, probably won't be the last. Uh, so, yeah, I think, like, and why I would say that, 
you know, the options are like why democratizing capital is important because, you know, it's not just a discursive pace. It's like, what do you do once you get into power? And mm. uh, like the question is, once you get into power, like basic social democracy just won't work. Mm. Like it just, it just won't work. Like, you know, cap, like unless you go down the path of democratizing capital, people's lives are going to get very, very worse very quickly. And I think the example of that is Mitterrand in France yeah. in the 1980s, where he, for listeners who don't know, he came, he was elected, he was probably the most el- radical uh, social democrat, a democratic socialist elected for the French Socialist Party in the 1980s and came to on a platform more radical than we could ever imagine. Mm. Uh, and by the by, there's a deal struck with the Communist Party, effectively. Yeah, and by 198, by three years later, he was implementing neoliberal reforms yeah. uh, because he wasn't willing to go down that path. Uh, and if you're willing to read that history, Bashka Sankara's The Socialist Manifesto recently just out with Verso is really good for okay, that. Okay, and Christine Berry goes into that as well in her book, People Get Ready. They do a bit of a, an analysis of what, you know, what they were up against. Like, I mean, it wasn't just like Mitterrand sold everyone out. Like, it was a, they, they came under sustained attack. In fact, the, the amount of capital flight that had happened in the lead up to Mitterrand's election, like the amount of money that was going out of the French economy in the like three months when it became clear that Mitterrand would probably win the election was like insane. And so they inherited already this completely destabilized economy. So, I mean, you're right. Like, I, I suppose that's a, I mean, I, yeah, like it's pro, it's less to do with, um, yeah, I mean, I it's a, it's a mixture of like not being... I think it's probably a mixture. Oh, it's a mixture of a lot of things. Like, what's mm. what's the? I suppose this is a question we wanted to ask. Like, what are the structural reasons why, a, like, a Corbyn moment doesn't seem? To yeah, be I was going to say that's the next question, in, the historical in, one in, in Labor today, or like, why is it that we believe that they're not able to recapture, like, or capture a, a properly like left space and that's credible enough to win them government, like a, a government, and if they win government, win them sufficient mandate to actually do anything that would keep them in government i mean that's that's the question i mean from from my perspective actually i think it was mick jones hit on it hit the nail on the head um in the last flood cast around regional stuff it's like no one's doing the work you're not going out and you're not knocking on doors and you're not having those chats and you're not rebuilding a social base that's educated enough that to withstand the attacks that come from the media and the establishment and whatever but do you think that's a cause or a symptom well, it's probably both, right? Like, I would I've, say it's a symptom. Yeah. Because, you know, like, I think for me, it's like the first historical reason is that, and we sort of talked about this off air, there's never been a democratic socialist bent to the Australian Labor Party in the same way mm. that there has been in the UK Labor Party. Uh, you know, the union movement has been always been far more conservative uh, in Australia as well. Uh, and... Also, it's just, you know, like it would always represented that sort of like centrist or right-wing laborism, which meant that there was never an intellectual base within the party or a his- historical intellectual base within the party for anything different. Mm. Uh, also, yeah. it's just a smaller country as well and with a smaller number of M- MPs with much tighter pre-selection processes. Yeah, high, sure. Very highly centralised party yeah. where anyone who went... You know, Lisa Singh is a great example. Mm. Left-wing s- Labor senator down in... Um, down in, you know, down in Tassie and she managed, she was outspoken on refugees. She managed to last one term because of the double mm. dissolution in 2016 mm. and then got crushed and put in an unwinnable position. By her own party. Like By her own party. Her in, did they put her last on the Senate ballot? Yeah, yeah. effectively. Yeah. Um, 
and so I think it's not her position that got her crushed. Well, yeah, well, it is, but she was crushed from within. And <laughs> Labor do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what I'm going to call this episode: crushed, crushed from, within. from within. Yeah, yeah. And, and <laughs> yeah, that's right. And <laughs> Labor do don't. This is the other thing. Labor do don't knock. And I was talking to a few Labor people after the election who they were door knocking in Petrie. Yeah. And like running into One Nation voters, like who were like yep. just being like, "Oh, I'm probably going to vote." Well, Labor voters who were going to vote for Pauline Hanson. Yeah. And them really struggling. Like, yeah, those. for and, sure. And You've got to have the politics. And I think that was one of the things that we learned from the like Griffith campaign and the things we've been doing in the last few years in the sort of Greens in South Brisbane is just door knocking. Not Door knocking is not door knocking, right? Like yeah. just because you go out and you knock on someone's door doesn't mean you're, liter- doesn't mean you're doing any work. I think, uh, well, I don't know. My experience was that they had Labor campaigners. Like I haven't witnessed a, a Labor door knock, so I don't, you know, know. I'm not an expert on that, but um, certainly the Labor campaigners on my booth on election day were talking. It was like they had read a thing that was like, talk to people about the things that affect their lives, which is a very, like, that's what you absolutely should do. But they just filtered it through this incredibly shitty lens, like mm. trying to be apolitical about those things. Sure. So the things yep. they were campaigning on were cross river rail, basically being like, wouldn't it be great to have more public transport? Cross, you know, cross river yes. rail, blah, blah. Yeah. But not framing that in any kind of inspiring way, not talking about. I don't know, like how, you know, public transport should be cheaper, should be accessible, should be like a way of kind of democratizing and owning the city for everyone. Yeah. Um, should be a way of, you know, meaning that you don't have to buy a car if you don't have the money to or you don't want to. Um, like any of that shit or like even putting that into just a bigger frame of like, well, I don't know. I know we talked about this a bit on our door knocking episode, but we always try to like you know, talk about the the fact that ordinary people don't have that much control over their lives, that Mm. big corporations really, like, call the shots at the moment. Like, you can make anything into that message, but they weren't trying to make a message at all. They were just kind of taking the surface. That's an extremely important point. And, yeah, and the absence of a narrative, and I think the absence of a narrative is an absence of a structuralist politics. Yeah. Like, what a politics that allows you to understand society and the economy and understand it in terms of, like, what are the power structures that mean that someone has to choose between paying the rent or feeding their children? Yeah. Uh, and being able to filter that down through a structure means you can go to the door and provide that narrative. But even at their volunteers, there's obviously no political education going on the party. When I left, I remember leaving the Labor Party in 2013 and the left being intellectually moribund. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I still remember, um, you know, asking just before I left, I was like, you know, say the Labor Party takes over the po- left of the Labor Party takes the party over over the night. What changes? And they'll be like, oh, that's... That's why we need people like you in the party, Max, to discuss that. And I was like, you're, you're dead. <laughs> a, lot um, of, a lot more women will be in leadership positions, Max. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not even true. Actually, the number of women in its Labour cabinet, I think, has gone backwards. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. And, but I think the other thing I was going to say is it's range the tools as well. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, like it's not door knocking. It's like the, the union movement is uh, yeah. the crisis in the union movement. Is the is the base and yeah. labor's the superstructure? Yeah, you know, sure. Like and and range the chills was this demonstration that la- that organised labor no ha- no longer has confidence that they can raise wages or change conditions via at a, at a large structural level as a result of industrial organising. Uh, like like that seems like they they spent twenty six million dollars, which could have been spent on organisers in industries across Australia, on losing what was meant to be the unlosable election. Uh, and fighting in the realm of politics. What they say when they say change the rules, change the government, is that that's just a trumpet call of their weakness. Like, capital would see that, like, bosses would see that and say, thank God, they surrendered. And I think that speaks to 
like I think the narrative stuff that you were talking about, Joe, like and these two really do interface because I do I think in the context where the you know something that's been a part of the kind of political perspective of of this thing that we're doing for some time is is this whole disintegration of the social bases of of both the parties or of of, of mainstream politics as we've understood it for some time and this is happening across Western democracies um, in particular um, and Australia is not exempt from it although it's happening a little bit slower maybe than you know say like France or whatever. Um, but it does mean that it's not just necessarily a structural analysis. I mean, I think popular education and making sure people understand what the fuck's going on is really important. It's something we need to be slowly doing. But as a way of like, you need to be able to broadcast a, I mean, this is getting into the kind of like Laclau and Mouffe, like populism theory stuff, but like you do need to be able to broadcast a, a decisive break between you and the establishment in this moment, like for the, because of all that hollowing out, because of people's separation, because people feel like they've been betrayed over and over and over again. And this is not just like the down and out, like uh, working class who no, you never everyone. pay any attention to politics anyway, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, in Queensland who are apparently all really awful people. It's also like, I think left activists, like people who used to go out on the streets and mobilize, but because they've been betrayed over and over again, they just don't go out again. Mm. Um, they've retreated in to their home like you need to be able to make a really decisive break and say there's an establishment there they suck they're fucking you up they're taking you know like they're ruining the economy they're getting you know you don't have a job because of that or whatever whatever narrativization and then there's this there's this other thing that we represent and if you can't begin with that where if you if you stand if you come in with like some technocratic reforms as your headline and change the rules sounds like that right it sounds like we're going to go and we've got this bunch of like progressive legislation that we're going to like you know pressure the incoming labor government to make these good you know good changes or whatever it just doesn't i just don't speak think it speaks to the political moment so you can't yeah you're right like the lack of being able to mobilize a grassroots base that can build a new social base for this politics does flow, you're right, from a lack of a, a political perspective and like narrative that would allow you to even have that kickstart of energy, right? No, to and to no be able to reach people with it. No, people are not going to listen. You can fucking have 100,000 door knockers going out talking about, message. yeah, talking about technocratic reforms that people don't relate to and people are still just not going to vote for you. Totally. Yeah, and there's no intellectual movement within the Labor Party that could articulate that. Like, I think that's clear. Like, it seems to be coming from think tanks or the Australia Institute or the Grattan yeah. Institute. At or the podcasts. Or, you know, or Amazing a radical podcast. Podcasts. And exactly, yeah. And that, that was my point around Corbyn. That, that was Corbyn marrying the coalition of anti-politics yeah. and social democracy was exactly that. Yeah. Mm. Um, and interestingly, Corbyn was partly brought to power off the trade union movement. Like, they were the ones that mobilised early on. And his relationships with certain unions, in particular the Union Unite, uh, I think it's the public sector union in the UK, uh, was an important part of that. So, Labour are dying mm. and or dead. <laughs> rip in pieces, piece Labour. Um, what's the answer? Yeah, I mean, having a lot of fun reading... Like, you know, I've, I'm going down the full, like, uh, you know, um, non-reformist reforms, uh, Ralph Miliband kind of thing, rabbit hole at the moment. And it, But it has made me realise that, like, yeah, like we were saying, like, the Australian Labor Party has no 
hasn't really had a, a genuine current of a democratic socialist project. But nor has that existed outside of the Labour Party in Australia. Like in, mm. you know, like, so you, we had that existed in the UK in the absence of there being a Eurocommunist Party in the UK. Like there was the Communist Party of Great Britain, but that I don't think ever, not that I know the history particularly well, but it doesn't seem like it ever became a force on the electoral level that would challenge the Labour Party for like the legitimacy of being the left-wing party. Whereas that happened... Yeah, it's actually very interesting. Sorry to jump in. But, no, um, you, you, you go. Um, I am like a <laughs> one of my more embarrassing kind of habits uh, or, or fandoms is um, I'm a real fan of the writer uh, Jessica Mitford, who was a who actually like grew up in a very aristocratic family in in the early uh, 20th century, and she became a, com- a committed communist kind of through self education. And ran away to um, join the international brigades and fight in the Spanish Civil War (laughs) at the age of like 17 or something. Um, And her diaries or her memoirs um, are fascinating. And if you ever get the chance to read, I've only read the first volume. They're called, uh, it's called um, Ons and Rebels, H-O-N-S and Rebels. Um, So good. But anyway, she mentions in in that memoir that at one point she and her husband um, moved to the UK and they tried to join the Communist Party, but I think uh, they found it very stuffy, bureaucratic, mm. and like not their thing. And the local labor, like, the, and they were like far leftists, like they had been to the Spanish Civil War, but they, the, their local Labor Party branch was what drew them in. So interesting. I reckon you're right about that. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think in Australia, like in so in Europe, you had these Eurocom parties, you know, like these Eurocommunists. So what does that mean? That means it's they were largely communist parties that were aligned. Largely with to differing degrees with uh, you know the USSR, but often had quite a bit of independence, and it depended on on the conditions in each country. But they took a perspective that they needed to you know like they had a an anti capitalist perspective, like a socialist perspective. They wanted to you know democratize the entire economy and so on. So unlike social democracy, but they understood that they well they believed they had to have some large electoral um, wing to that like winning government was part of the strategy I think of a lot of those parties and so they built large infrastructures not just um, they built large social movement type infrastructure um, trade union sort of implement like implantation um, and then also building a lot of capacity on the level of trying to win power at an electoral level and that's a tradition that certainly doesn't exist like you know there just doesn't Either you, in Australia, if you, were, if you were on the left, and actually today, if you are on the left, what do you do? You're, you're either in the Labour Party. You post. And you, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, that's kind of the answer, right? Because either you're in the Labour Party, like in terms of being active out in the, out in the movement, rather than this, this, not even social democratic, this like right-wing Labourist Labour Party, or you're in a tiny sort of Trotskyist group that believes that you have to smash the state and somehow revolutions, can, like, I don't know, fantasy land stuff, um, or your Guns in the foothills of Vancouver. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or you, I suppose you're kind of a localist anarchist thing, um, or you're um, in the greens. In the greens, or like, or you were in like the Democrats maybe uh, back in the day, which is you know often it's like a liberal reformistic like we'll keep the bastards honest. So we'll liberal Democrats in, from the UK. Yeah, in a way. In yeah, and I mean the Greens have taken over some of that, but it's intention with a more left wing strategy. That's you know like so. 
there there really hasn't been there's not this kind of like current of intellectual or or practical experience around a strategy that says we want to get to a control over the economy that's democratic um, that delivers a good life for everybody, et cetera, et cetera. We don't believe that's going to happen through some kind of insurrectionary moment. Like that's not real in the you know developed world in the 21st century. Um, but it's also not going to happen just through sheer parliamentary reform, like just slowly. Like there just isn't that tradition in Australia from what I can tell. And I mean, this is something that I think we're all trying to come to. At the moment, and I, I reckon Mick touched on this in our last episode, but the uh, spectre or the the promise of the the Green New Deal could, you know, possibly be a, a way forward with that kind of thing. Because I reckon, yeah, if done right, and there's no absolutely no guarantee, it wouldn't turn out to be just kind of a uh, another technocratic fix. But it does, yeah. I, I reckon, you know, the, more and more there'll be that question of of. Well, it'll intersect with these big questions about climate change and jobs and so forth. Mm. And there is a path forward there. How that, you know, how you do that right is um, something I'm not qualified to comment on. Yeah. And but I reckon that's maybe the, what's on the horizon. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I've, you know, I think going back, Liam, the other thing that's, you know, there's been those left Eurocom party, parties. But the other thing in the absence of Australia has had, which I think is almost even more important, is large social democratic movements. Like, you know, True. and hasn't even had social democracy. And, and you know, the actually the real radicals in terms of change, structural change in Europe in the, in the 20th century were the social democratic parties. Mm. Uh, the German social democrats are the first example. Yeah. And, you know, uh, that like the Labour Party from the early 20th century, you know, Lenin was writing about them as this like weird right-wing aberration. Oh, um, yeah. Lenin's <laughs> few remarks on the Australian Labour Party are amazing. Yeah, like they're such a spicy take. They're still prescient. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you <laughs> can imagine bourgeois him... bourgeois like, party it, posturing as a... Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, like you can imagine him posting that on Twitter now. Yeah, um, yeah it's a powerful post. He was such post. a poster. Uh, <laughs> Marx is more of a poster than Lenin, I think. But like... Marx's Mar- footnotes y- in capital. Are the <laughs> biggest... <laughs> Like energy. sassy, like you get like he actually Capital Volume on One Germans is entertaining. Constantly. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> he was a very lonely man in the library writing Capital. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. He had yeah. no Twitter to like let this out. Um, you just could <laughs> write angry letters and shit. Um, yeah, yeah. And you know, and so I think that tension between communism and social and social democracy and those competing strategies, like it was a dialectical tension, and I think you know to a degree. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, in the sense that in. As a, you know, I probably shouldn't just rely on jargon, but the the tension between like more revolutionary and more social democratic reformist strategies in in that tension were produced outcomes, like yeah, things that sure. otherwise wouldn't have been produced as a result of that tension. Um, and I think you know that goes back to the historical roots, um, uh, historical roots, and and I think this in terms of the Labor Party, you know, like from its foundation, it was a right wing Laborist. Um, Thing and it maybe probably has something to do with settler colonialism and the abundance of land uh, and on the need to control labour flow into the country was like the primary thing. Yeah, it, the, yeah. it, it really was the primary thing. Uh, and the white Australia policy and things like that. Yeah, precisely. And so, like, not being able to draw on that historical tradition cr- creates a really powerful impasse mm. because no one has a historical memory of what social democracy would look like yeah and this is and this is what I, I wanted to say there's a large preface to my i'm increasingly cooling on the concept of the green new deal mm. because i think the power of the green new deal in the uk 
more so in the US, is a historical memory of a large social deal or transformation that resulted in... A, the spirit of 45, right? Yeah, a, yeah. a major transformation in people's lives. Um, the UK had it with the building of the welfare state post-1945 and similar, you know, and Labor, apart from Whitlam, just never really had that and I think Whitlam is tied up in a whole bunch of other things. And so, sure, I think what the Green New Deal stands in for is uh, that concept that, you know, the a dominant hegemonic politics in the 21st century has to marry climate activism with... Uh, with, uh, you know, like improving people's material conditions and the way you combine that is like, let's have this huge investment in public infrastructure and social care and things like that geared where it's like centrally planned and geared towards saving the environment and by the way, along the way, we improve people's lives and distribute power. Mm. And, you know, your coalition is essentially like people concerned about climate change and people who want to improve their material lives. And at that very high abstract level, the Green New Deal makes a lot of sense to me. Where increasingly I'm suspicious of it, Joe, was that articulation around that being a technical concept of it being a technocratic fix, mm. Mm. which I think the more we use that term, the more it stands in for that. Yeah. Um, Wait, the more we use the term Green New Deal. The more it, yeah, I think the, the term in, in of itself, like its implication has an, is a term. Has a danger to it. Yeah, and I think this is where I found really useful reading Bashka Sankara's book is that, you know, I don't think he mentioned the Green New Deal once. It's not it's not said once, I think, through the entire book. And uh, I think because for me, the other strategy is that um, is that learning learning some of the lessons of the sort of like, like um, non-reformist reforms or that like radical social democratic project um, or, you know, calling it whatever we call it, economic democracy or whatever we call it. I think for the very precise reason that, Liam, your point around having that narrative exciting left organisers even who have probably was like, I don't even think, I remember sitting in our campaign office, this is a, and we proposed the Green New Deal as like, a, and every organiser in our office was like, that's boring as fuck. <laughs> and, that's true. And, that's true. And, you know, like, and they are the nerdiest of the nerds. Like, if anyone's getting excited about that, it's them. And sure, AOC's done a good job um, of, and I think, you know, I think it's very US specific and we've got to be yeah. careful about Specific because the new well, that's the reason why we haven't adopted it already. Yeah. is because it's like there is just not an equivalent, right, in Australian political memory. Like the yeah. green, the New Deal is something that people that resonates in the US. We don't have like the Green Accord. Holy fuck! Right, but that's like in a way. Richard Dean Natale would in a second. The current federal leadership. Yeah, the current federal leadership is the Green Accord. Um, Like a new pact between labor and capital that includes the environment and like an even more of a push into like the social wage and all this sort of stuff. Like that's a. that's kind of it, right? Yeah, yeah. No, the, the um, Greens and so the Greens 2019 platform was the was the Green Accord, but and so I think it's like a it's a blessing. No, actually, that's not fair because like at least we're like backing the right to strike and stuff. Like the Accord, the main problem with the Accord wasn't that it was like trying to get more like of the social wage and all this stuff. It was that it was curtailing the capacity of the labor sure, movement to actually enforce that that actually happened. So like you know, credit where credit's due. Like the Greens 2019 platform was not trying to repeat the. Mistake Mistake of the no, of the accord. I, I mean, not like for not all in, of our misgivings about the. <laughs> no, not in a direct material sense, but in the sense that it proposed a, it didn't propose a massive transfer of class power. Mm. It, like it proposed a new social contract. Yeah, 
And you but know. but that's I mean how else are you going to do it like well, you I, I, it, I, I, the, the whole solution seems to be today like is social democracy plus a plan a staged planned transition towards more workers ownership over stuff well, right like over in like over the means of production that's basically it it's like democratic socialism is social democracy like a, a pact because you're going to need a pact because you you can't deal with this overnight like like labor and capital or like this the movement versus capital has to come to a new agreement but of course in the sense that like that's an enforced agreement that actually includes the slow whittling away of the power of the capitalist class like so i mean it's it's really got very little to do with you know whether there's a social pact in, like written into the set of legislations that you want to put forward but what that implies in terms of how you're going to actually implement it and where it goes from there that's the whole point about the non you know reformers yeah reforms. yeah absolutely but i think why i would say it was the green it was the green accord because it didn't have any of the where we go from yeah. there bits yeah. and it was light it was very light social democracy and it lacked that concept of universalism it lacked yeah. Uh, the concept, like any concept of a transfer of power in ev- people's everyday lives. Uh, in fact, it probably articulated a solidification of mm. the existing power structures. Mm. Um, and this is where my problem is around the concept of the Green New Deal as well, is again, and it, is all of that. I, what I was trying to say, though, at the end of all of this is, this is a blessing for us in a way. Like, it's a blessing to have no historical tradition in some ways because we don't have to be weighed down by the mistakes of the past in that sense nor you know because there was the fucking massive problem with the new deal was sure it was good for a small section but if you were black or a woman or you know any person of color like it fucking sucked um and and it locked in a a very alienating like there's a you know you read the critiques that were happening like before you know it's this interesting thing before neoliberalism before the thatcher offensive you know there were all these left critiques of social democracy right there was all these critiques of left critiques of the the golden era that we refer to like 45 to you know the mid 60s or something where you know everyone had a stable job or like all white male workers mm. had a stable steady job and they had you know like the, the pact was like relatively good for that section but there was also like th- it was also boring and alienating and shit and like so many people wanted something else mm. and th- you know and there was a reason why something had to change whether in a left wing or a right wing trajectory out of that so no that's absolutely absolutely um you know but on the other hand it's a barrier because we don't even have a, a starting point i think um, the starting point is yeah i mean for me i think the starting point is an organizational one there's two questions as an organizational political one and the you know like we touched on this in our door knocking episodes and are talking about the Griffith campaign. But, uh, like, I remember this at the start of the Gamble Ward campaign as well. I remember it being this is a question of control over people's lives and a question of um, finding a politics that and, and organizing in working class communities or in the communities that were based in our own workplaces that says that you can have power over a transformational politics and fill it with the content of democratic socialism probably with a, a different name and or like economic democracy is not a bad one but it's about you know and and finding a, a broader narrative that we sort of already touched on big corporations taking over etc we can have a better thing 
Um, we can have a better thing. We can you know, have a better that's thing. A that's our slogan. Yeah, yeah. Fucking book but the billboards, people. <laughs> fucking better than Shorten's. But um, I reckon a lot of that actually, just to touch on that, is about work, like the future of what work yeah. looks like. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, you're right. Like, you know, being having been guaranteed a job... Um, I don't think it's that great. Like yeah. jobs fucking suck. I think David and friend of the show has talked a lot about how, you know, the, the current, the, the move towards flexibility in working conditions mm. was in a way precipitated by workers themselves who yeah. did want more flexibility, like yeah. legitimately hated the nine to five stuff. Yeah. And so yeah. I guess, yeah, like pretending like we can go back to stable nine to five employment yes. for everyone is, yeah. a, is just a dead, like that's dead in the water. Um, and I think, yeah, any strategy any kind of greeny deal strategy and there's been a bit of writing about this recently has to be i well i i don't know i think has to be uh has to take as one of its cornerstones the idea that we should all be working much less yeah and this is why another reason the greeny deal i think is increasingly a useless term because embedded within the, even the cons politics of a green new deal is more work for everyone mm. yeah. in the you know climate jobs etc and yeah i take the point that like you know for you know, mm. friends of the show who and the Australian Unemployed Workers Union and and things like that, like you know, and for them, job guarantee stands as a point of dignity, like dignity through work. Like at least they're not um, having to deal with the deeply alienating Centrelink, etc. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, but, no, but you know, like welfare sucks as well. I should make that. Very but the clear. mental, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the mental health crisis going on in Australia, I think you know, and across the world, and um, spiking suicide rates and the yeah, deep it's levels just as of alienation. Much for employed as it is for unemployed people. Exactly, yeah. and yeah, yeah, for um, sure. and you know, like jobs guarantees are having a real moment now for that reason. I think embedded within the politics of Green New Deal, and I think it's a dead end. Yeah, uh, and it was—it's a dead end for the same reason that right-wing social democracy was a dead end, um, in you know in the twentieth century. And I think we have—and this is where increasingly I feel like we got—we were getting—we're getting close to a real radical nugget, a sort of politics. That I just don't think we should use the term Green New Deal anymore. I think yeah. we're getting—and it excites people. And when yeah. you know the. the the forum that we held that was the most packed and most exciting was the communal luxury one. Yeah. Um, And uh, I think that, you know, that's more down the path of fully automated luxury communism than it is Mm. down the path of a Green New Deal. I think both are are massive problems, frankly. But um, (laughs) Big problems. Yeah, and I think um, this is where... But, you know, this is where I think... um, uh, Like, if you went to the average workers and you said... Would you like to, you know, like, how do you, would you prefer to work less or be installing solar panels on someone's roof? <laughs> like, everyone wants to fucking work less, you know, yeah. like, uh, uh, you know, like, I remember door knocking someone in, this is anecdotal, but it was really affecting, like, in Karina Heights. And I was do- talking to the guy um, and he was speaking from behind the screen door because they couldn't open it. And I was like, oh, are there any issues? And then from the kitchen... This woman, like, this is in a working, sort of the working class area of Griffith. I hear this, like, faint voice, let's work. And I hear this, like, doof, 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 doof. And this woman, like, middle-aged woman comes to the yeah, door, yeah. like, sweat on her brow, like, clearly cooking in the kitchen. And yeah. she's like, there's too much work. We're working too much. Yeah. Like, yeah, and yeah. I was like. Yeah. And it was really interesting. I mentioned four-day work week and they looked really unconvinced. Yeah. Mm. Which speaks to the question of power and control. Yeah, I mean, I think, and that's the thing, like, because I'm not, I'm less and less convinced of a UBI as a as a response. I don't think that's going to have sufficient cut through, and I'm not sure if it's it's actually the kind of deal that we want to try to like broker with the like in the in terms of the 
order moving forward. Like I'm not sure if it sets us up as well as other ways of moving forward, like universal housing and so on. Like I think if universal gonna, basic services. Yeah, is exactly. The thing universal in the UK basic now. services is I think a much more coherent um, approach where you're decommodifying large, taking large things out of the market. Right. Uh, you know, more and more essential things are taken out of the market. But I think uh, we do have to have a response around like the the jobs stuff right like we do have to have a response um and the four day work week seems the most coherent response right like it's the one where we say we'll share the work around everyone gets to work less you don't lose any pay i mean i think there's the concomitant thing like the thing that, that has to go alongside that is uh, a transition plan for yeah. regions uh, there does have to be all you know a, a, a bold uh, plan for um, sustainable infrastructure development that actually is credible and creates jobs and so on in depressed regions and all sorts of stuff like this but yeah I think I think you're right probably um, you know, actually, interesting uh, to to reflect on this that the um, the the my 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 friends in the Belgian Workers Party, um, the the PTB, have been going from success like from strength to strength over the last three or four years. One of their key demands is the thirty hour work week. Yeah, that's one of the things that they march. They have banners and they go on marches Fucking awesome. and they march. Le semaine est trente heures. Like we want the thirty hour week. They're marching. They've got banners with this, and it's and it's resonating. Like it's picking up big votes. So. Exactly, and and this is what I'm really and I, I completely agree. And I like I've been thinking a lot about this four day work week stuff, and. I can, you know, I usually don't say this these sort of strategy bits out loud here. Right, row. <laughs> we can always cut this out. Redacted. Yeah. This is for Patreon subscribers <laughs> yeah. only. Yeah. Bee. And we. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> bee, bee, bee. I blame you, Bob. And bee. <laughs> and if you're listening to this now, Jackie Trad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. No, no, but like, I think one of the strategies going forward, are like, I think a four day work week is one of those universalist demands far more powerful. And there's a whole bunch of strategy, organizing strategies you could take. Like, for instance, in the Greens, if we had a conducive federal leadership, you could have at the national conference like an agreement that we're going to push the coming up to the next federal election, one of our key radical demands is going to be a four-day work week. And then we like, you know, f- uh, map every member of the Greens across the country who is a member of a trade union. And and be like, your job is to go, yeah. be elected as delegates, go into your union workplaces. And get up motions for... And get, up, get it into the log of claims because yeah. it's not hard, speaking from experience, it's not hard to get things into the log of claims. Mm. Um, and and filter it and have an organising group around like, and you know, being like, want to work less, let's go to the beach more, share more work around. And socialism. Of, yeah, and of course it's embedded with more social housing, raising new start... Um, big investments in, uh, you know, in uh, transition plans and things like that. But it's not based around a green new deal. It's not based around like a new deal of work. Yeah, it's based around it's based around a major social transformation. And I think that yeah. lends it far more self to more than what we were talking about before around being anti politics as well as because yeah. you're not only you anti politics then in that sense you're anti the current way that we reproduce ourselves. And it's also really easily communicated, right? Four four day work week is so much clearer than change the rules. <laughs> range the chills, you mean? I think it's called range the chills. <laughs> <laughs> like it, and it represents a break. It's a, it actually does represent yeah. a break because it's not just higher wages. It's a, a change in the way that we think about work. But it's in, it's yeah, also simple. It's like it's numerical. It's like oh, we go from five to four. Great. Imagine the comms plan. We like Greens yeah. want to abolish Mondays. Yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. Fucking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I guess we sort of 
yeah. should wrap up kind yeah. of soon, yeah, right? Yeah, we're kind of getting to the end. I'm sorry for hitting the couch, listeners, but, you know, it's just shows <laughs> my enthusiasm. Getting very, it's very animated. Over animated. Here. It's, like, it's quite should... nice to see that his adrenal glands are sort of like working again. <laughs> this is the most animated I've felt for weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about how much you hate the labor. No, well, the <laughs> last bit was a forward-thinking strategy. <laughs> That's true. Maybe we should live stream some of these podcasts so our listeners can see, like, the beautiful... Hand movements. Actually, both of you have been pretty big on the hand movements. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to have one or two yes. last little things Please around do. strategy. And because I think this is, I think, yeah, the universal basic services plus four-day work week is probably the thing, right? And and in, in that, there's a green dimension, right? Where you've got to deal with climate change. And in fact, that's a benefit, like that's a, you know, step. Like we can use that to, you know, but it doesn't have to be the headliner. But I think... Um, I think there's the other dimension to all of this is like the practical reality of how this gets rolled out in Australia now. Like literally where, do, okay, so given this politics, which is a non-reformist reforming uh, uh, social like, movement approach to politics, like not in the sense of like just rallying on the streets, but building a movement that can both take government and then also have power to implement these things. We're like, we're so far from that right now. But I do think that going back to the 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 theme of the um, the podcast tonight, uh, rip, the, the rip in pieces, rip in pieces, <laughs> ALP. Uh, well, what, what did we come up with halfway through? I don't know. It was better. Uh, than crushed that. from within. <laughs> crushed from within. <laughs> sounds like a um, Britney Spears. Song. <laughs> um, sounds um, like an airport novel. No, there's apparently <laughs> we're listening to. I think is it Aqua did or is it um. S Club said one of those bands when they went off the rails like 10 years after the heyday did this track called Fuck Me Like a Robot. Anyway, <laughs> worth looking up. It's amazing. Um, Maddie, uh, one of the regular Floodcast oh, contributors, um, got me onto that last night. That's incredible. Anyway, so, <laughs> I do not want the Labour Party to fuck me like a robot. Anyway, um, but I think if we're going back to that theme, the Labour Party is collapsing, but it's collapsing unevenly. And it's collapsing in Queensland first. And I think that's like I'm, I'm calling it because there is just so much the Queensland State Labor government and also federally the Queensland Labor, like the Australian Labor Party, uh, like they're wedged and they don't, they don't know how to move forward. They also don't have popular MPs in Queensland in the way that they do in like so in Victoria the Dan Andrews thing I think has led to a, re- a revival, a temporary one I believe like I think it's not going to last but like a temporary revival in in people's belief that the Labor Party can do a thing. Um, and that sort of led to a bit of a resurgence in the Labor vote. Um, you know, the crushing of the Libs at the state level and the suppressing of the Greens vote. I mean, the Greens not... Not doing themselves. Not doing themselves too many favours. I mean, despite, I'm sure, a lot of people doing a lot of hard work and, and trying. But I think there's some things that need to be worked out there. Um, but, and also, and then in, in, in a city, Sydney, you've got popular Labor MPs, right? You've got Albo, Tanya Plibersek, and so on. Whereas in Queensland, it's like... It's the dregs at both state and federal level. The the Adani stuff has really broken them in the in the inner city, as well as just a series of failures in terms of like planning laws. Um, you know, the Bly era asset sales stuff is still means that the trade union movement is not particularly keen on them. Like there's just a whole bunch of local conditions that means that the Labour Party is collapsing here. Um, and also the depression of the regions where working class people are shifting away from the Labour Party in droves, mostly to One Nation, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think there's just a reason 
why, if we're going to build the infrastructure to launch this kind of politics in Australia, it's happening in Southeast Queensland first. Sorry, um, everyone else around the country. Yeah, I mean, I think I said this at the um, the start of, um, I think on our election podcast show, but um, like, you know, I think that if things happen right over the next few years, I really do think that the Queensland Greens will replace Labor as the progressive party in Queensland. And you only have to look at the federal election. 26% is the Labor primary vote in Queensland out of the federal election. Um, and Labor's and Greens was in about 10%. And I think, like, you know, Labor, have, Labor hitting the limits. I think the reason they're hitting the limits faster is because of the mining downturn. Mm. And... Uh, you know, the end of the construction phase of the mining boom. I think they're being propped up a bit more now that the coal prices shut up a little bit The um, and China's economic um, boom continues. When China's econom- economy slows down uh, and or any other form of the crisis preci- precipitates itself, I think is when things are going to shift. Mm. And for organisers out there listening, now's the time to get involved because what we're doing, what we need to do now is build... The political infrastructure, MPs, organisation in communities, um, the social base, ba- you know, like community campaigns. Intellectual work. You know, all of that, the political education for when Labor betrays us, br- like, badly. Like, they're betraying us badly now, but, like, when they really go and screw people over and betray any one of their principles and... The question will be, will that political potential fragment and will people either vote for One Nation or the LNP or will we be able to build a movement that says there's something other is possible and really transform people's lives? Mm. Um, And, you know, uh, it's all up for grabs and it's all uh, pretty random. But the other really unique thing about historical traditions is the establishment political forces have never been weaker. Like, that's the other big difference from the 20th century. Um, There isn't... A political force in this country anymore that uh, you could cause formidable. Yeah, cool. Certainly not the Labor Party. <laughs> the Floodcast Patreon, on the other hand, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> large formidable. social base. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any rounding up thoughts, Joe? Um, not particularly. I think we've covered it all. Um, one thing I did that did strike me particularly about the ridiculous, like student politics nature of that bill amendment was, like, speaking of kind of learning all the wrong lessons. It seems like they really are trying to go down, very misguided, but they're trying to go down a kind of cult of personality thing around Albo. Yeah. Like oh the idea God. that he's DJ Albo, he's a lad, True. he's like making this, all these funny changes to legislation, which is like they're cherry picking kind of what people thought about Rudd in like, but yeah, <laughs> they're trying to do a cult of personality, but there's no content behind it. A yeah. Labour person I know called Albo a poor man's Rudd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I can see that. Um, which is this tragedy that is a yeah, farce. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is um, uh, this is Louis Napoleon. The what is it? Yeah, which, which is the Louis Napoleon that 18th Premier was written about. Anyway, anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> and on that n- nerdy note. <laughs> yeah, what was I going to say though? But um, the cult of personality, cult of personality. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, there's there's no content behind it, and um, well, oh, that's right, that's right. Um, the the interesting thing being that like elbows from the left, and one thing we didn't get the chance to talk about, but I would like to talk about later is the meaninglessness of factions in the Labour Party oh, these days. and just personalities. Left is is further right. The left faction is actually further right than the right faction at this point. But anyway, <laughs> I guess that's just another sign of their complete structural decline. Rip in pieces, uh, guys. Yeah, so thanks. Ciao. Bye. Bye.